Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. must see the central narrative that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, October 19th, 2022, the 637th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator you can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and you'll be supporting me and the work I do and this show as it expands. If you can't do it or you simply don't want to continue listening to the show for free on a variety of platforms, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. So before we get started, I just want to let everyone know that I had a great interview last night with a man named Keith Wilkins. He writes under the moniker politicalmoonshine.com and a lot of his work over the last few years has been on COVID-19, the pandemic as an enterprise fraud construct, basically a large organized criminal conspiracy that has been built over decades to enable exactly what we saw emerge in 2020, continuing all the way up to the present day. The man is an exceptional researcher. He has been working with teams of people, many of whose names you would know. And so I would suggest checking that interview out. You can go to the Badlands Media page on Rumble to see that. And I've posted it multiple times in the info stream on Telegram. I've posted it on Truth Social and on Twitter. So you should be able to find it pretty easily on any of those platforms. And if you want to see some of the images that we used last night, some of which I know were too small to really read during the broadcast. You can go to his website, politicalmoonshine.com and search for an entry called COVID-19 Enterprise Fraud Construct Timeline. And that's from September 29th of 2021. 
Everything we discussed last night will be substantiated and documented there at length. Keith is the one who designs all those graphics so you can kind of visualize what's going on. And people really responded so well to that interview. So I hope you check it out and enjoy it. Keith and I will definitely be doing more like that in the future. So I figured we'd start today on a really cheery note. And to lift your spirits, I thought maybe we might check in with the hate movement that's happening in our country right now. And I know that sounds extreme. That sounds hyperbolic. You can't say that. But all I'm doing is going on the history of hate movements and how they come into being and how they organize. And then once they start, the sort of messaging that they use. I think we've all been taught to understand that when people are referring to other groups of people classified by race or religion or political ideology as termites and ticks and fleas and rats and vermin, then that's a sign of dehumanization. That's what they're doing. They're dehumanizing their opponent. That's a tactic that is often used so that when they begin talking about how their opponents need to be removed from society or even exterminated, no one bats an eye because they have all determined and agreed that their political opponents or their ideological opponents or people of another race or religion are not actually entitled to human dignity anymore. Now, Michael Steele is an MSNBC contributor who used to be a former chairman of the Republican National Committee. And the people on MSNBC and the child brains in the MSNBC audience still pretend that Michael Steele is a conservative. It doesn't matter that he endorsed Joe Biden in 2020 and did ads for the Lincoln Project. All that matters is that they can pluck one person, call that person conservative and say, hey, this is one of the good ones, not like those other ones. And we know he's one of the good ones because he's willing to call people on his own side, fleas and blood sucking ticks. McCarthy um, has not learned from the history of three prior Republican speakers of the House who've all been thrown out by their Republican caucus. Isn't that, I mean, stop and think about that. What Republicans have done to themselves, going back to Newt Gingrich, John Boehner, and Paul Ryan, right? And so McCarthy's now next in line with a base that is prepared um, to throw him out should they allow him to be speaker. I agree with Donna, still not 100% that that's gonna happen. But Kevin has decided to make his bed and is prepared to lie down with the with the lice, the fleas, and the blood-sucking ticks. And whatever befalls him is about is going to come from that that relationship. Uh, and and unfortunately for the country, we're going to have to bear the brunt of it. Now, why in the world would they be trying to take down Kevin McCarthy? They used to like Kevin McCarthy. He was sort of an anti-Trump to them. He could be a little bit on their side. He was someone that they could at least influence and use in some way. He wasn't always someone who would lie down with the fleas and the blood-sucking ticks. No, he used to be kind of useful. But they blew him up last week at their January 6th committee hearing. Why wasn't Kevin McCarthy in the secure location, plotting and planning with Nancy Pelosi about how best to protect the Capitol from the very violent insurrection, even though Donald Trump had offered her 10,000 or 20,000 U.S. National Guardsmen to protect the Capitol, and she turned it down days before the very violent insurrection. And even though, despite all the danger, it was still safe enough for Nancy Pelosi to have a bring your daughter to work day. Her daughter came in with a film crew to film the whole affair. It's almost like Nancy Pelosi was setting the whole thing up to be that way. 
And it wasn't only her daughter either. Her son-in-law, Michael Voss, took selfies outside with the QAnon shaman. Another very, very dangerous man. I cannot believe that Nancy Pelosi exposed her own family to such grave danger, knowing it would come with the foresight she had to call in her daughter's film crew. But Kevin McCarthy was not there. So everybody got very, very mad at him. What was he out there siding with Trump and the insurrectionists? And so they tried to beat him up a little bit about that last week. And now they are very, very mad at Kevin McCarthy again. And why are they mad at Kevin McCarthy? Because he said that when Republicans take back power, they're not going to continue funding this ridiculous and illegal undeclared war that essentially the U.S. and other foreign mercenary allies are fighting in Ukraine, ostensibly on behalf of the Ukrainian people. But as we all know, that is complete and total nonsense. They are having an absolute meltdown over the fact that they may not be allowed to continue this ridiculous war that we are funding. And of course, the Ukrainian Nazis who were trained by our CIA that that funding is going to. Now, there is absolutely no dispute over whether or not Ukrainian Nazis make up a large part of the Ukrainian military, which for all intents and purposes does not exist. It's Ukrainian Nazis and foreign mercenaries, more or less. It doesn't matter one little bit whether or not Volodymyr Zelensky is Jewish. That is not an argument. You cannot say those aren't Nazis because their leader is Jewish. First of all, he's not their leader. And no one with even the slightest amount of sophistication could possibly believe that Volodymyr Zelensky is making wartime decisions as the president of a sovereign nation. He is a comedic actor who was installed to be the very puppet he is being. But again, the soldiers are Nazis. The Azov Battalion is a Nazi battalion. These are Banderaites. There has been a history of Nazism in Ukraine for the last 80 years and probably much, much longer. So what they're really saying is that Nazis are okay when they are being directed by a Jewish man we approve of. And at that point, you can kind of throw out the whole Jewish part. It's really just Nazis are okay as long as they're being directed by us. That's what that argument is, because they certainly can't claim that their position and Volodymyr Zelensky's position, which requires directing a Nazi army, is something that all Jewish people would be happy to go along with. I doubt there's any way that's true. And in fact, I'm pretty certain it's not true because Israel doesn't seem to be supporting Ukraine nearly as much as Joe Biden is. And if you say all this, if you say, hey, Nazis are bad, even when a Jewish man you guys like is pretending to direct them, you're called an anti-Semite. So my strong anti-Nazi stance also makes me an anti-Semite. Well, by pure logic, if I'm against Nazis and what you're saying is that by virtue of that, I'm actually against Jews, you're conflating Jews and Nazis and essentially saying that Jews are Nazis. I'm not the one with the logical inconsistency here. And again, the main point is, it is not a matter up for debate whether or not these are Nazis. They just are Nazis. It's been widely reported. It's laid out in UN documents. Our own Congress has voted on the Azov Battalion, labeling them as Nazis. It is not a stretch at that point to see Michael Steele's comments based on his support of actual Nazis in Ukraine 
as being part of the same whole. And what is that whole? A hate movement. But that's not even the worst thing coming out of the communist hate movement in the last 24 hours. This is the human election fraud machine, Stacey Abrams. Having children is why you're worried about your price for gas. It's why you're concerned about how much food costs. For women, this is not a reductive issue. You can't divorce being forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy from the economic realities of having a child. And you can see how principled this is. Having a child costs a lot of money. Therefore, we need abortion when people don't have money. It's strictly an economic decision. And we don't need any extra babies because then the government is going to end up having to provide assistance to take care of these babies. And the government can't do that even as we expand an enormous welfare state and the Democrat Communist Party and their talks incessantly about providing universal health care and universal housing and universal basic income and universal child care and universal pre-K and universal public schooling and universal free community college and universal free college. But we just can't have any more babies, you see, because if we have more babies, then all of that stuff is going to cost more money. And we don't actually want to give it to everybody because the only way these sorts of plans work is if we only give them to some people, which makes it less than universal, I suppose. But if you're the sort of person who is, you know, just casually pro-choice and doesn't really pay attention to a lot of this stuff, you've grown up believing that having a child is something you should do once you're ready, once you're all set, once you have your finances in order, and you can afford to pay for that child's healthcare and housing and education. And that certainly makes sense on some level. I don't think anyone would deny that it's better to be financially stable when you take on the additional responsibility of another person when you decide to raise a child. But that's only an argument for waiting to have children until you're ready. It's not an argument for abortion because that's still a life inside the mother. That's not something that should get weighed against ideas like, oh, we're not going to be able to eat at restaurants as much. Although that's how people now think of it. And consider what people spend their money on, even poor people. And I'm not trying to make light of it. There are absolutely people in dire financial situations for whom having a baby would make that financial situation even more dire. But it doesn't mean you then get to kill the baby as an economic decision. And it's strange that they bring this stuff up because they say that the reason we need to have abortion right up till the day of birth with absolutely no restrictions is about a woman's right to choose. And if that's the actual reason, then why is it an economic decision too? It's either a right to terminate your pregnancy or it's not. It doesn't have an economic aspect to it. And of course, it's not a right and it can't be a right. And it wasn't a right during Roe versus Wade, though they pretended it was. And even if all their justifications made complete and total sense, that still wouldn't explain why they refuse to have the conversation about any limits on a woman's ability to decide to abort the baby. Even Donald Trump has come out in favor of exceptions for rape and incest in the life of the mother, but that's not good enough. A six-week limit is not good enough. They need to take it all the way up to the end. And plenty of Democrats have talked about this in public, including and especially former Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, who said in a radio interview that if an abortion was attempted and the baby was actually born alive, the woman and the doctor could still decide what to do with the baby. California has a bill that they were pushing, allowing abortion in the perinatal period, which extends for weeks after the baby is born. 
So what exactly is going on with all that? They have all these reasons why they want abortion all the time, no matter what. It is only a choice between the woman and her doctor. And by the way, I have no idea how we all just came to accept that those are the two parties who should be making that decision. Why is the doctor involved? Is the doctor just going to say, oh, yeah, abortion safe. Here you go. If you want one, what sort of guidance are these doctors providing? And let's say, for instance, there was a system where all the abortions were done in certain places and in those places, they were very pro-abortion and they hired doctors who were similarly pro-abortion. And then they brought the women who might be seeking an abortion into those places, let's say clinics, where the doctors would talk to the women about abortion. Now, if the doctor is pro-abortion and the clinic is pro-abortion and there is some sort of financial factor whereby the aborted fetal tissue was sold by the clinic then one might suspect the possibility that the doctors were encouraging the women to go through with their abortions, whether or not that was the best decision for the woman. Now, ideally, that decision would be made between the woman and the man who impregnated her, or maybe the woman and her family, or the woman and a spiritual leader of some sort. Maybe if she's religious, it's a a pastor or a priest at the church. But why are we continually told that it's a decision between a woman and her doctor? Because that entire concept seems pretty crazy now after witnessing the last two and a half years where we have seen quite clearly that some doctors and certainly not all doctors are among the most evil people on the planet. We can talk all day about how valuable our healthcare workers are. And some of them are certainly incredibly valuable. And I'm not trying to take anything away from those people. But doctors aren't some untouchable class that we are not allowed to criticize. Doctors went along with the entire COVID program that was from the very first day a complete and total fraud. It was an implementation of evil. They accepted the premises of the COVID-19 pandemic while knowing that they were being incentivized to accept it. They used tests they knew to be faulty. They ran up the cases so that they could receive more taxpayer money from the COVID relief packages. They placed patients on the absurd hospital protocols recommended by public health officials. Remdesivir, a drug they knew didn't work, a drug they knew could cause acute renal failure. And then they put those people on a ventilator where they were almost certain to die. Doctors did that. Doctors didn't speak out against masks they knew didn't work. They didn't speak out against lockdowns they knew didn't work, but the doctors were mostly not responsible for implementing that part. So we can give them that. And doctors have happily gone along with the vaccine regime, encouraging their patients to get a drug that the doctors apparently haven't bothered to understand for themselves, a drug that can kill people, can maim them, can sterilize them, and can poison the people around the person who got vaccinated. Mothers can pass that toxicity onto their children through their breast milk. People can pass it to one another through an exchange of bodily fluids during sex. This stuff's just in the documents. I'm not making it up. And doctors went right along with it. So I'm sorry, but doctors are not infallible. Some of them are very good, just like every other profession. And some of them are very bad. And we have seen how very bad they can be. So why in the world should we think that doctors who work at abortion clinics are going to give responsible advice to women who might be considering an abortion? And then let's take it one step further. These doctors have been incentivized by this COVID system. Doctors in abortion clinics have been incentivized by our abortion system. And they have been happy to partake in both of those. Well, who's controlling that system? Ultimately, it goes up to our 
government agencies. And then above that, the people who are making decisions for governments around the world, the WHO, the UN, the World Economic Forum, all of them get their input. They're philanthropists and their partner corporations, their allies around the world fund all of this. And all of those people speak explicitly about their desire to reduce the Earth's population in order to save the planet from the sun. Now, we know that Planned Parenthood was started by a woman named Margaret Sanger, who was a proud eugenicist hellbent on eliminating black people from the human species. Again, not making it up, not extreme, not hyperbolic. It's just the actual history of Margaret Sanger. Is it a mistake then that Bill Gates' father was on the board of Planned Parenthood? Again, that's just a fact. You can look at all the fact checks you like that say, despite Bill Gates being on the board of Planned Parenthood, there is no evidence that he's a eugenicist. <laughs> okay, he's merely on the board of a eugenicist organization. And his son talks about depopulating the planet, talking about how there are simply too many people. But you're right. There's no evidence whatsoever that Bill Gates or his father are eugenicists simply because one of them was on the board of an organization started by a eugenicist and the other just wants to depopulate the earth. And then there's just the question of why they seem to need so many abortions and they want to be able to acquire abortions during late stages of pregnancy. They can talk all they want about the life of the mother. Again, that is an exception in what seems to be an emerging compromise position from the pro-life side, but that's extremely rare and the statistics back that up. So why do they need to keep late-term abortions available? Well, we know that aborted fetal tissue has been used for experiments done by the science and the scientists. You can look up a man named David Delyden, D-E-L-E-I-D-E-N, David Delyden. He did some work on research that was being done at the University of Pittsburgh, sponsored by NIH and NIAID. That's Francis Collins and the Nazi doctor himself, Anthony Fauci where they were grafting aborted fetal tissue onto rats and mice so they could do science experiments on living human tissue without subjecting humans to it. And of course, to do that, they had to procure the aborted fetal tissue. And there's money in that process. And as soon as money enters the process, then it's incentivized. Well, if we can do more of this, then we get more money. And one would imagine that for their science experiments, fetal tissue in a certain stage of development might be more valuable than fetal tissue in other stages of development. But regardless, Stacey Abrams is not expressing a pro-choice position, and she's not even expressing a full position. It's just they want abortions all the time. End of story. And they'll give you argument after argument after argument why maybe some abortion should be allowed. And then they just expect you to understand that those arguments cover all abortions at any point. The view is not pro-choice. It's anti-life. And when you're representing an ideology that can easily slide into dehumanizing people and calling them fleas and blood-sucking ticks... It's really not hard to determine where these points meet. It is a hate movement. Now, people have been following the John Durham prosecution of Igor Danchenko in the Eastern District Court of Virginia. This is from Technofog yesterday. Igor Danchenko, not guilty on all counts and what we learned from the trial. Igor Danchenko has been found not guilty of providing false statements to federal officials in the course of their investigation into the Steele dossier. After one count was dismissed, the Charles Dolan count, these charges remained. Count two, March 16th, 2017. 
Danchenko told FBI agents he received a call in late July 2016 from a person he thought was Sergei Milian, when Danchenko knew he had never received a call from Milian. Count three, May 18th, 2017. Danchenko gave a false statement to FBI agents that he was under the impression that the late July 2016 call was from Milian. Count four, October 24th, 2017. Danchenko falsely stated to FBI agents that he believed he spoke to Milian on the phone on more than one occasion. Count five, November 16th, 2017. Danchenko lied that he believed he has spoken to Milian on the telephone when Danchenko well knew he had never spoken to Milian. That's the difficulty of proving a false statements case when the FBI and the Mueller special counsel were uninterested in pursuing the truth. As we've seen from the course of this trial, the most important takeaways from this trial have never been the alleged lies. Danchenko himself has long been known as a fabricator, with his deceptions revealed as soon as information on his involvement in the Steele dossier, his background, and his FBI interviews was released. Q observations from 2020 from ourselves and many others. And some of that is linked. What is more important is that which informs our understanding of the Trump Russia investigation and the FBI DOJ Mueller misconduct that sparked Crossfire Hurricane and continued through the Mueller investigation. That information was revelatory. The institutions were on trial alongside Danchenko, with Durham recognizing in closing arguments that, quote, the FBI mishandled the investigation at issue, end quote, and the institutions rightly suffered. Danchenko might have been spared, but is there any reasonable doubt as to the FBI's incompetence and guilt? This past week, we provided some of the most comprehensive coverage of the Danchenko trial that you'll find, and I would suggest that's true, but even more comprehensive was the coverage from uh, my friend Kyle, who you would know online as Just Human. Our goal is to always provide the most relevant information, preferably through transcript excerpts where you, the reader, can see the testimony for yourself and reach your own conclusions. At the same time, we also aim for concision. We hope that we achieved those goals. For us, here are some of the most important highlights from the trial. Steele was offered up to a million dollars to corroborate the dossier. And the court transcripts show Mr. Steele was offered anywhere up to a million dollars for any information, documentary, physical evidence, anything of that sort, which could help prove the allegations. He provided none of that. Danchenko was a confidential human source for the FBI from March 2017 through October 2020. He was accused of giving a number of false statements during that time period. He was paid over $200,000 as an informant, and his status as a confidential human source buried him as a witness. Sources and methods. The Mueller special counsel had FBI agents and analysts investigating the Steele dossier, but purposefully limited the scope of that inquiry, making sure any information damning to their investigation would not be uncovered. Former FBI intelligence analyst Brittany Herzog testified she learned of Charles Dolan's connections to Danchenko during her time with the Mueller special counsel. She requested to interview Dolan. Others opposed that request. The opposition won out. FBI special agent Amy Anderson, also part of the Mueller special counsel, requested to interview Dolan. Her request was shut down by superiors. Director Comey was informed on all parts of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, from its beginnings up until, theoretically, his termination. FBI Special Agent Kevin Helson, who handled Danchenko as a confidential human source, omitted key derogatory information that Danchenko was the target of a previous espionage case in his opening paperwork. FBI Special Agent Kevin Helson was recommended to assess Danchenko's employer and look at the financial nature of Danchenko's employment. Helson failed to do so. Helson was recommended to investigate whether Danchenko lied in his visa and immigration documents. Helson failed to do so. FBI Special Agent Kevin Helson was recommended to conduct a polygraph of Danchenko to determine if, quote, he has ever been tasked by a foreign individual, entity, or government to collect information or perform actions adverse to the U.S. interest. Helson failed to polygraph Danchenko. Crossfire Hurricane started on a suggestion of some kind of suggestion from a friendly foreign government. 
It was opened as a full investigation, which allowed for the use of investigative tools not allowed at the preliminary investigation stage. The FBI wanted a FISA on Carter Page fairly early on, around the end of July 2016 or soon thereafter. However, the FBI didn't have enough to secure the warrant. The evidence wasn't there. FBI analyst Brian Auten was unable to confirm or corroborate any of the Steele dossier claims from the receipt of the document until the first FISA application in October 2016. FBI analyst Brian Auten and FBI colleague Stephen Soma knew Democrat Charles Dolan could be a source of information of the Steele dossier. Neither asked Danchenko about Dolan. Dolan would ultimately testify that he believed some dossier information came from him. The FBI checked with other agencies and was unable to corroborate the dossier info. FBI analyst Brian Auten is a quote unquote subject of the Durham investigation and will likely be suspended by the FBI. Sergey Milian was a confidential human source for the FBI's Atlanta field office. The Crossfire Hurricane team found no evidence Milian had, quote, assisted in the interference of the 2016 presidential election. And if you can't trust the Crossfire Hurricane team, who can you trust? While Danchenko told the FBI he spoke with Milian, emails from Milian demonstrate Danchenko had no idea who Milian was. The FBI Mueller special counsel never obtained those emails. When presented with the FBI failures documented during the Danchenko trial and the Michael Sussman trial, one can't help but be reminded of their investigation of the DNC hack. Both investigations have similar types of errors. The failure to pursue investigative leads and collect evidence and uncorroborated claims of Russian interference or collusion based on information provided by DNC Clinton contractors. Here, the FBI and Mueller special counsel refused to interview witnesses with knowledge of the dossier allegations. In the case of the DNC hack, the FBI never obtained the DNC server. The FBI didn't even obtain the unredacted CrowdStrike reports relating to the hack. Instead, the FBI relied upon CrowdStrike, hired on behalf of the DNC by disgraced attorney Michael Sussman to inform the FBI's assessment of the hack. As Aaron Mate explained, in this essential essay and Technofog is quoting the fact that the Democratic Party employed the two private firms that generated the core allegations at the heart of Russiagate, Russian email hacking and Trump Russia collusion suggests that the federal investigation was compromised from the start. Back to Technofog. At some point, mistakes consistently made in one direction cease to be harmless errors and become circumstantial evidence of something nefarious. And that is a great way to put that. That is an excellent sentence right there. So let's go through that one more time. At some point, mistakes consistently made in one direction cease to be harmless errors and become circumstantial evidence of something nefarious. Now think back to COVID and think about all the mistakes that the public health community and the universities and the corporations and the media and the celebrities, all of the false information we were fed and we were given no explanation when that information, when those narratives, when those slogans completely changed. Oh, I guess the science has changed. Turns out we don't need two masks. Turns out cloth masks don't work, but N95 sure do. Now everybody should wear N95s. Oh, no one's wearing the N95s. Because you can't wear N95s every day, all the time, the right way at all. It's not even possible unless you have an endless supply of N95s. Well, thank goodness the mask mandates are gone. So we'll just continue to pretend the N95 thing would have worked, but now just nobody's going to wear them. And I think it's really important to look at things as a connected whole rather than all of these discrete little elements. Because every time there's one of these mistakes, they just say, well, this was an isolated incident. They give a convoluted and complicated explanation about how the thing happened. They say they're going to investigate it. They say they've worked that problem out. They've written some policy to correct it. And then it all just moves on. It was only that one mistake. And then another one comes up. Same process. Another one, same process. And they do it over and over and over and over and over again. When mistakes are happening and they all lead to benefit for one side, you have to begin to wonder 
if there's something else going on. That's not conspiratorial thinking. It's not unreasonable. Technofog is right. That's circumstantial evidence that something else is afoot. And you can consider that in all of the election problems, all the various stories about 2020. You look at each and every one of them by itself in isolation, and you might be inclined to think, oh, okay, well, yeah, you know, they said it was wrong. They admitted it. It was a human error. It was a glitch. They apologized. Isn't that good enough? I mean, that's what Dana Bash on CNN actually asked Carrie Lake the other day. Oh, well, yeah, but they've apologized. They've apologized for that mistake. Why are you still saying it's a problem? Well, if the mistake that's made allows potentially thousands of illegal votes to be inserted in an election, an apology really doesn't cut it. And when we see mistakes happening over and over and over again that benefit establishment politicians, then what you're seeing is not a bunch of isolated mistakes. It is a system created to achieve a certain result. And the apologies and explanations are only there to attempt to cover up each and every little part of that system. But let's go on. In another context, we might call that the cumulative weight of circumstantial evidence. While we can draw inferences from that behavior, Durham faces a more difficult task using such circumstantial evidence to build a criminal case. Maybe he has more, maybe not. Maybe these FBI agents and officials were adept at hiding their criminal conduct under the guise of incompetence or cluelessness or a poor memory. We also ask whether that's it for Durham. The Wall Street Journal reported this would likely be the final prosecution of the special counsel to be followed by a report detailing Durham's findings. If that's true, expect the report to be submitted after the midterms, absent further developments or other prosecutions by the Durham special counsel. If the reporting is true, we'll see. And the reporting may be true, but there's no reason to assume that it will be right now. It's just reporting from the mainstream media and they tell us the wrong thing all the time. Does Durham have more prosecutions to come? I have no idea. But I do know that assuming he doesn't, based on reports from the mainstream media and using that as a foundational belief by which you form an opinion on what's happening with the Durham investigation is a good way to lead yourself far astray. The information that was produced in these trials has been damning for the FBI, for the process, for the DNC, for Hillary Clinton. You remember her former campaign manager, Robbie Mook, admitted in his sworn testimony that the Clinton campaign and DNC paid for all of this. They were aware from the very beginning that there was this illegal operation to undermine the presidential campaign of Donald Trump in 2016. And we know that they continued to spy on Trump, even in the executive office of the president. Now, it's quite obvious that without convictions of anyone, they certainly haven't fixed the problem that includes literally everyone involved in that situation. But they could be building slowly toward that. And so I don't think that people should just throw their hands up and say all of it's over. Justice is never coming. A lot of truly damning evidence was produced in these trials. And it's evidence that could be foundational for a much larger investigation and a much larger prosecution. Whether or not that'll come in the future is not something I can know, but it's not something that any of the people who are blackpilling can know either. We are engaged in a long, slow process to restoring justice in this country. It's not an immediate thing. And I have some very close friends that get very frustrated with this stuff. I tell them to imagine being out in a forest with an axe and you have to chop down a massive tree. You could spend all day chopping at that tree and not topple it. It doesn't mean that your work was all for nothing. If the tree hasn't fallen, especially if you get to go back the next day and keep chopping, that's kind of how the thing works. You have to take all the little swings, all the little chunks out of that tree. And then one day the entire tree falls. 
The solution is never to say this is too tough and just give up or this is taking too long. That's just whining and it's useless. No one's being forced to invest their time and energy in this stuff. If you're going to give up, don't whine about it. You don't need to convince other people to give up with you so that you feel better about giving up. See, I told you it was all pointless. We're never going to get anywhere. I give up. And you know what? If you don't give up, you're stupid. We're all aware of the scale of the injustice and the evil that's been perpetrated in this country for a very long time by all of these people in power who seem to always get away with everything. Well, everyone gets away with everything until they don't. That's how it works. And the situation is so much bigger than Kevin Kleinsmith and Michael Sussman and Igor Danchenko. Those aren't the people we care about taking down. Sure, convictions would be lovely, but these are little fish and we all want the big fish. If you got three convictions in these three trials and then the special counsel actually stopped its work and no one else picked it up and none of it was pursued in Congress or anywhere else, those three convictions would be meaningless. These men getting acquitted doesn't somehow mean that none of it happened. It doesn't mean that actually the mainstream media and the Democrats were right the whole time. And I understand that it feels like all of them are pouring salt in your wounds right now. But if you're just going to quit the fight and give up on all of it and just throw your hands up and say nothing's ever going to get better, they're going to pour salt in your wounds for the rest of your life. Switching subjects completely without a segue. There are rumblings that Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter may be imminent. Yesterday, it was reported from internal Twitter communications that Twitter had locked the ability for its employees to make any stock transactions involving Twitter. It was also announced a couple of days ago that Kanye West plans on purchasing some part of Parler. And Elon Musk actually tweeted out a picture yesterday of the three musketeers with their heads replaced by Trump, Kanye, and Elon representing Truth Social and Parler and Twitter, or as Elon Musk is now just calling it X. He has a whole new project he wants to start, an everything app that kind of Sounds a little bit too much like the Chinese app WeChat, but we shall see. And of course, Kanye has been making news like crazy because he refuses to back down to threats that he is receiving nonstop about the things that he's saying regarding the number of Jewish people in power in the entertainment industry. And it seems that Kanye is absolutely not backing down from any of it. In fact, he's doubling down and going harder and basically throwing it in their faces that they are unable to cancel him. This was reported yesterday, Business Insider. Kanye West says he plans to have dinner with Donald Trump and welcome him on to Parler and will also sign up to Truth Social. And that, as you might imagine, would be absolutely massive for both platforms. If Donald Trump went on to Parler, that would be big for Parler. If Kanye West went on to Truth Social, that would be huge for Truth Social. Every time someone who's capable of making news every time they post on the internet moves on to one of these platforms, that means the new platform gets all sorts of new attention. And of course, it's not always good attention, but it's attention nonetheless. And with that attention comes new users, particularly as those people get frustrated with the legacy social media platforms that they now understand are censoring any thoughts that are unapproved of by the regime. This is just more in the long march toward the regime losing complete control over the narrative as their censorship system breaks down and their propaganda system breaks down. And there is a propaganda system. This is The Guardian yesterday. BBC prepares secret scripts for possible use in winter blackouts. 
The BBC has prepared secret scripts that could be read on air if energy shortages cause blackouts or the loss of gas supplies this winter. The script seen by The Guardian set out how the corporation would reassure the public in the event that, quote, a major loss of power and, quote, causes mobile phone networks, Internet access, banking systems or traffic lights to fail across England, Wales and Scotland. Northern Ireland would be unaffected because its electricity grid is shared with the Republic of Ireland. And let's just get back to this situation that they're talking about. Just let's be clear about this. A major loss of power causes mobile phone networks, Internet access, banking systems or traffic lights to fail across England, Wales and Scotland. So a wide ranging blackout, a comms blackout even. Well, what's the solution? The public would be advised to use car radios or battery powered receivers to listen to emergency broadcasts on FM and long wave frequencies, usually reserved for Radio 2 and Radio 4. Now, wait a second. How are you going to use a car radio during a blackout? All the cars are going to be electric, aren't they? Isn't that the future? Electric cars? So we wouldn't be able to use a car radio unless you had a gas-powered car. But I'm sure the geniuses at the World Economic Forum have thought their way fully through this. One draft BBC script warns that a blackout could last for up to two days with hospitals and police placed under extreme pressure. Another says the government has said it's hoped power will be restored in the next 36 to 48 hours. Different parts of Britain will start to receive intermittent supplies before then. Oh, I wonder which parts. I wonder if we'll be able to detect any sort of pattern based on which parts of the country have electricity back. It is understood they were written by BBC journalists as part of routine emergency planning to deal with hypothetical scenarios. They include local details for the different regions and nations of Britain. In a national emergency, the BBC has a formal role in helping to spread information across the country as part of the government's civil contingencies planning. You got that? So if all other sources of information are somehow just wiped away because of Vladimir Putin, then only the government has the power to tell you what's going on. What a scenario. The broadcaster's governance framework states, if it appears to any UK government minister that an emergency has arisen, that minister may request that the BBC broadcast or otherwise distribute any announcement or other program. The government works with the BBC as part of its emergency planning process, although it is unclear whether it had any input on these scripts. Oh, probably not. It's probably just the BBC journalists making things up, just trying to be extra prepared for an event that might occur. A spokesperson said the government is confident that this is not a scenario we will face this winter. The BBC said it did not comment on its emergency broadcasting plans. Ministers have been at pains to reassure businesses and householders that blackouts are unlikely. However, National Grid, which oversees electricity supplies in Great Britain, has issued a rare warning that power supplies could be at risk. The organization said that in a worst case scenario, it could order planned blackouts for up to three hours a day if Russia cuts off all gas supplies to Europe. Oh, those evil Russians. It's all Russia's fault. Not the people who set up the electricity grid, not the people pushing the Green New Deal policies and whatever the hell they call that nonsense in England. No, it's Russia. On Monday, National Grid's chief executive, John Pettigrew, went further and said that if everything that could possibly go wrong did go wrong, there could be rolling blackouts between 4 and 7 p.m. on really, really cold days in January and February when wind speeds are too low to power turbines. Oh, that's so sad. I'm just realizing for the first time that wind energy and solar energy don't work. And that information so crushes me that it's hard for me to even bring up the fact that even if they did work, they would still create an enormous amount of hazardous pollution in the landfills. 
and kill millions and millions of birds. The BBC's draft scenario suggests that in a national blackout, it would run a greatly reduced temporary radio service from the UK's emergency broadcasting center called the EBC, based in a rural location not acknowledged by the BBC. Ooh, it's a secret. This would provide half-hourly news bulletins on Radio 4's FM and long-wave frequencies and a music service with news updates on the FM spectrum used by Radio 2. One scenario used in some of the scripts assumes that main electricity is available only in a few lightly populated parts of Scotland, the Western Isles, Orkney and Shetland, and some parts of the Highlands. The draft scripts for on-air news bulletins include space for a quote from a cabinet office minister given the fictitious name Jose Riera. <laughs> hey, who's going to say this? Oh, it's going to be uh, Jose Riera. It's good to know that they are so thorough in their reporting of events that have not happened. The scripts report that these blackouts would affect gas supply systems and knock out mobile phone networks, cash points, and internet access. Traffic lights would stop working, causing disruption on the roads. One script, written for a hypothetical news bulletin, warns, The emergency services are under extreme pressure. People are being advised not to contact them unless absolutely necessary. So basically, everything's down, we've turned everything off, I mean, we didn't turn it off. It's just that we created a situation where there wouldn't be enough power. We didn't see this sort of thing coming. We thought we could just make the green energy transition. And then Vladimir Putin in his very evil war of aggression gave us the perfect opportunity to test it all out. And you know what? It turns out doesn't work. So now everything's off. There are no comms for any of you. Sorry, you're going to freeze. Sorry, you can't get money. Please don't even call the emergency services because someone out there has it much worse than you do. And you should know that. And you should respect the needs of the community rather than prioritizing yourself. But don't worry. We're going to play you music that you don't want to hear with intermittent updates of what the government says you have to do. And you can listen to those in your gas powered cars. It states that in Wales, an emergency coordination center has been set up, while in Scotland, the first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, is chairing the devolved government's emergency planning meeting. It adds, officials are saying there is no current risk to food supply and distribution, but they're asking people to look out for vulnerable neighbors and relatives. You see that we're all in it together, or at least you're all in it together. The people are all in it together. And when you're all in it together, the best thing to do is whatever the government tells you to do. And if you're one of the people who doesn't do what the government tells you to do, then it clearly means you're not all in it together with everyone else. Like what? You think you're better than everyone else? You think you know more than the government and the experts? That's not possible. You have to trust the experts. Just think of how much better things could have gone during COVID if everyone had simply trusted the experts. That's what we should have done. Then everybody would be vaccinated and no one would have COVID anymore, even though the vaccinated are the only people getting COVID. And you have to trust the government, no matter how many isolated, small, totally explainable with convoluted and complicated explanations, little mistakes they've made. It's not evidence of a system-wide problem. They're just these little mistakes, human errors, computer glitches, miscalculations. We were going off the models. The models are the best science we have. The models said we could make this green transition with no trouble at all. But whoops, now Vladimir Putin has gone into Russia and it's thrown all the models off. The models never accounted for Vladimir Putin's war of aggression. We couldn't see that coming at all, even though we've been stoking that exact conflict for a decade and truthfully much longer. But hey, we're sorry the models didn't account for that. We're scientists. We can't predict the future. That's why we create the models that can't predict the future to predict the future. And the models failed again. Damn. 
So the models failed and the system, this whole green transition system, this new source of power that failed too. And now you're all going to freeze and maybe there are going to be problems with food supplies and you can't get money and it's really dangerous to drive because the traffic lights are out and you can't communicate with your family and your friends and your neighbors to make sure they're okay. And you can't get any information at all. No phone calls, no internet. The only solution is to go out to your gas powered car and wait for the government to tell you what you have to do. And thank goodness the government is looking out for the people and the government always does their job so well, because otherwise this never ending series of constant mistakes might make it seem like the government is actually just torturing the citizens to the point where the citizens have no choice but to rely on the government and do what the government says forever. Thank goodness you still have that one tank of gas in your car so you can listen to the government's commands. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com. And you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab. 
and I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at imyourmoderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!